Well, happy Valentine's, everybody. <clears throat> Did anybody get a kiss this morning? One person. How sad. <laughs> so sad. Anybody get any chocolate this morning? How many people am I getting in trouble right now? <clears throat> Turn Colossians chapter 3. And uh, let's begin to uh, kind of unpack this passage. We've been going through Colossians for the last month or so. And for the last several weeks, uh, we have been talking about something that uh, if we truly step into with our lives, uh, could really begin to shake the foundation of who we are. We've talked about that we have fullness in Christ. It's not something that if we are in Christ, we have fullness in Christ. And Dave unpacked that for us. And then we talked several weeks ago about uh, circumcision. How at the hands of Christ, we are brought from death to life. That we are the true avatars on this planet. Think about that for a minute. <clears throat> then uh, the last in this series, as we talked, we've been set free from the curse of the law. That we are free. That we are truly free people. And what's remarkable, and I, I want us to step back and just and see an overview. What we've been talking from Colossians 1 through chapter 2. Uh, if you remember, chapter 1 was about who is this Jesus? And then chapter 2 was what did this Jesus do? So everything that Paul has talked about so far is about him. He's not about you. Everything in this chapter so far has been about what he's done, what he's continually doing, and what he's going to do. And what's remarkable about that is we get to chapter 3 and we finally have come to the point of this book where we get to do something. I don't know if that's good news for you, uh, but look at chapter 3, verse 5. It says it right there, it says, put to death... Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. So, he's now calling us in response to everything that Christ has done. We're to do something. And I kind of like this feeling of now I get to participate. My wife, Renee, uh, many of you know Joel Walker. Uh, when they get together, they love to cook. I do not cook. I like to think about cooking uh, in the sense, what I mean by that is I like to eat. Uh, so when they get in the kitchen, they always cook up these amazing things. I'm like, well, what can I do? How can I help? And they never give me really anything to do. Matter of fact, Joel will pull a chair into the kitchen and just say, bro, just sit and talk to us. And that sounds really kind, doesn't it? But it's so demoralizing and demeaning. Because <laughs> he's basically saying, you have nothing to contribute here. So he's not really saying, shut your mouth and sit down. He's saying, open your mouth, but sit down. And so Jesus, or Paul, is saying to us, now we get to participate. Finally, we get to do something. But it's really not like what you might think it is. We're getting to do something here, uh, but sort of. It's kind of like hash browns at Waffle House. I mean, think about it for a minute. Uh, how do you like your hash browns at Wa Waffle House? Scattered, scattered, smothered, and covered. Which means what? Scattered, that's right, scattered. 
But does anybody else know how many uh, other ways you can order Waffle House hash browns? Yeah, what is scattered, smothered, covered, and chunked? Does anybody know what chunked, chunked? Ham. Or how about scattered, smothered, covered, chunked, and topped? Chili. Laura, that's disgusting that you know that. All right? All right, okay. How about uh, scattered, smothered, covered, chunked, typed, topped, and diced? Tomatoes, that's right. So, in essence, when we're being called to do something, we're being invited to be Waffle House hash browns in the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is everything that we do, we, we are smothered, we are covered, we are topped with the chili of God's grace, with the love of God's provision in Christ, that, that we are passive hash browns in a life of covering of God's cheese. Let's close in prayer. Well, let me explain this because, uh, and we'll come back to the waffle thing in just a minute, all right? But let's look at uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and uh, let's look at some of the things that he's saying for us to put to death. Because it would be one thing if we heard for months now, uh, this is who Jesus is, this is what he's done, he's awesome, he's great. We heard it in Psalm 40, he's lifted us from the slimy pit, he's put our feet on a firm foundation on a rock. And, you know, wouldn't it have been good if he would have said something simpler than just, hey, by the way, put to death all sin in your life. Oh. Such as sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ is all and is in all. So why would Paul say to us, because of what Christ has done, now we need to put these things to death? Why would he use such strong language as putting them to death? And I think it's because he, he listed the things in which are very difficult for us to put down. And the reason that I believe that it's difficult for us to put these things down is because we want them. We want these things. Why is sexual immorality a very difficult thing to say I'm going to step away from? Because sexual immorality offers so many promises of pleasure. It offers so many enticing things that seem to awaken something within us that we say we want that. I mean, think about, it. you know, we, we're not tempted by the things that we hate. There is a television show that was made in the 90s. Uh, and it had a character called Fran Fine in it. 
<laughs> Does anybody know this show? What is it? This is no temptation for me whatsoever. <laughs> With the shrill New York accent, I'm just, it, I, I don't find myself staying up after 11 o'clock to watch the nanny. It just doesn't happen for me. But think about the different things that he's got in his list. Think about greed. I mean, it really is fun to sit and to contemplate and let our hearts wrap around the idea of having more than I have. I mean, it's pleasurable in a way to think about, you know, if I just could add to my storehouse this, then my happiness or my joy would be so much more enriched. But to do that, I have to, in a certain way, become discontent with what I have. If I become discontent with what I have and then attach myself to something I don't have and then desire that thing and I've got to have that and the greed, I mean, there's certain pleasure in that. Yesterday, I was driving around Nashville and I came to a red light and next to me was this car. Mark, can we show this? Oh, it's the Audi R1. And all I could think about was what a miserable person that person must be that's driving that car. How sad, how they must be looking over at my 10-year-old Volvo saying, if only I could drive that that smells like french fries and somebody spelt milk in the back seat. Thank you, Mark. Because I look at that car and I go, would that car be fun to drive? Good night, y'all must be dead this morning. That it would be fun, wouldn't it? Okay, there would be pleasure to be had <laughs> in driving that car. Now some of you, you're, that's like the nanny for you. You know, cars mean nothing, alright? I understand that. But you got something, you know? You got something that I could shoot up on that screen. How about coveting? That was in the list. That greed not only to have what I don't have, but coveting that I want to take away from others what they have so that it can become mine. When my kids were little, no one had to teach them to say mine. It seemed like that just flowed out of them like honey, you know? They went through that stage. We want it. Or how about anger? You know, how can there be pleasure in anger? The other day, uh, it was Thursday, I went by uh, Great Harvest. Have any of y'all had the cinnamon rolls at Great Harvest? They are worth covening for, all right? So I go in, they're big, they're sourdough, and I'm getting a couple uh, to pray. And uh, the guy ahead of me, he had bought a cup of coffee, and he had... He was fixing his coffee and he went over to the register, but he left his coffee right on the edge of the counter where you order and went over to pay. I didn't see it. I walked up. I had a big heavy coat on. I knocked over his coffee and it just went everywhere. And so, you know, I smile and say, God bless you. You're, you know, a sweet man. And on the outside, I really was smiling, but on the inside, I was getting angry. And here's what was going on in my mind. You idiot. Why did you leave your coffee there? Here was a remarkable thing about the pleasure of anger. My anger allowed me to remove all responsibility from me for knocking over that coffee. My anger allowed to put all the responsibility on him and completely make me justified. Matter of fact, I felt better about myself when in my anger I could blame him for what I did. Did that make sense? 
scattered, smothered, and covered. We could go through each of these, and we will over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about some of these things. But how do we really, how do we begin to put to death these things in our lives? Like, how do we literally begin to do that? Well, let me talk for a minute about ways that we don't do that. But we try to do that. One of the things that we try to do sometimes in our lives that we think is putting to death sin is we try to shrink it. That we try to make sin smaller than it is. That it's a punchline for a joke while I'm standing up here. Or that it's something that we chuckle at or that it's funny. That we shrink it. And a lot of times we shrink it by degrees. That we start making up scales that are acceptable. You know, scales that allow us to free ourselves from the obligation of the seriousness of that sin. Trent, my son, was home a couple of weeks ago and he came in the house and said, you'll never believe this. I was at the traffic stop over here on Hillsboro and this guy got out of his car and went up to the car in front of it and punched the guy through the window. I said, you are kidding. He said, no, man, they were screaming and yelling. He got back in the car and he left. And, you know, it'd be really easy to go, and then say this, I would never do that. And so we set up this scale in our lives. Oh, I might get ticked off at somebody in traffic, but at least I don't get out and punch them through the window. So my sin may be, mm, their sin is, Bruh. and so we begin to set up these scales. Like even in dealing with our anger, we may say, you know what? I grew up in a home where maybe a parent uh, screamed a lot or they would get angry and throw things. And you've made a commitment in your life, you're never going to grow up to be like that. And so you never get loud. Matter of fact, you've turned the volume way down on your life and you never throw anything. Matter of fact, when you find anger coming up, you start moving very slowly and you intentionally place things where they go. Because you have so committed yourself not to throw anything because to you, that's the greatest evil of all anger. But what you may not be dealing with is the passive-aggressive of your own life. That anger may not be squeezing out of you like cheese in the way that it did in your parents, but it's still squeezing out of us. But we tend to shrink it down and make it less than what it is. You know, sometimes when we try to make small of sin, I've even heard some people say, well, you should indulge your sin until you're sick of it. And then when you're sick of it, that's when you'll put it to death. Like the father who finds his kid smoking at the age of six and makes them sit down and smoke the entire pack. You ever heard, anybody, any of you ever had that experience? That would have not worked for me. Because my love of tobacco goes all the way back to sixth grade, you know? It's a six perverted mind, I know. But you know what's crazy about that is when we begin to shrink sin, we begin to lose sight of the reality of our own hearts. We begin to lose sight of the reality of what God is teaching us and who he is. You know, Christ, even on the Sermon on the Mount, said, you know, that if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Or if you, in your anger, curse someone, you've committed the sin of murder. He goes on to talk about, you know, remove this, before you remove the speck of dust from your neighbor's eye, we must move the log from our own eye. I mean, it seems like that Jesus is saying to us, be very careful that we don't attempt to put sin to death by shrinking it, by saying to ourselves and the people around us, well, you know, hey, God forgives me. We've been talking about it for the last three weeks. 
that I'm forgiven, I'm free, I'm no longer under the curse of the law, so sin's really no big deal at all. And so we make it a very small thing, and it seems like an in, uh, a very small thing for us to put it to death. And it's easy for us to say, well, it's no big deal. But Jesus keeps telling us, no, it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. So the second way that we try to deal with this sometimes is go from one ditch to the other. And that is to go from, I'm not going to shrink it, to I'm going to make it really, really big. Has anybody ever said to you after you've blown it, you should have thought about that before you did it? Why would we say that? Aren't we trying to say to them that you should have considered the possible consequences of your behavior before you ever did it? That you should become so afraid of messing up that you never even get near messing up? That one of the ways that we try to put sin to death is we try to make it huge. That it is the monster in the room. That we're terrified of getting anywhere near it. That we look at what is on that list and we judge it and then we even begin to despise it and then we hate it. Then we wrap ourselves up and we store ourselves away and we hide ourselves from life. I mean, it's easy for us to say avoid all sexual immorality and go and say, and move into a category of saying sex is evil. That all expressions of sexuality are wrong. That it's dirty, it's dark, it's, it's something that's completely apart from God. Start to have a prudish view of how God has made you. You know, the whole starched shirt, collar, you know, Puritan view that we really aren't sexual beings at all. That none of us have a sense of sexuality. That we avoid all that because sexual immorality. Or how about desire, you know, that, that if evil desires are wrong, then really we should make this huge and we should avoid all desire. Matter of fact, we should consider that desire is evil and that passion is evil and that we need to avoid that at all costs. That nothing good happens after midnight. You ever heard that? Huh? Because certain things happen that were bad after midnight, everybody should be in bed by 10 o'clock. That will avoid evil. And if you go to bed at 9 o'clock, you're even better. All right? Or even wanting. We look at greed and we look at coveting. And it's easy for us to blow these things up into such big things that we even get to a place to where we said, it's evil for us to want anything. It's evil for me to admire the engineering of that car. It's evil for me to say, wow, when I see it. It's evil for me to want anything or that your emotions are bad. That we cage our emotions in. And we say, because anger, anger must be wrong. And so I'm not going to feel. I'm not going to feel any anger. I'm not going to express any emotion. I'm not going to ever be honest with my own heart and how it's processing. Because I don't want to get anywhere near the bigness. When we do that, sometimes it's easy to become cold. It's easy to become calculated. And even kind of control freaks. Because now what's guiding our lives, what's the compass of our lives, is fear. Sin is big monster. I'm afraid of it. 
And my fear is now going to be my motivation to never get near it. But you know what's crazy about that is we've been talking for the last three weeks that we've not been called to fear. We've been called to fullness. We've been called to be alive. We've been called to be free. He didn't say live in fear of sin. He said kill it. That we're to put it to death. Matter of fact, God isn't the big kill joy. God's not trying to take joy from your life. God is the one that's trying to pump joy into our lives. I mean, think about it. Let's just think about just for a minute about the angels when they came uh, before Christ was born. What did they say? Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. The very first proclamation that a Messiah was coming was to proclaim that he's bringing joy. Even Jesus said, he says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus said, your full joy is what he was after. Even Paul said it. He said, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In Romans, it says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit in us, isn't it? Joy, peace, love. And listen, in 2 Corinthians, it even says that everything the apostles did was for our joy. Not that we lord it over you in your faith, but we work with you for your joy. See, God understands something about sin that he's trying to bring revelation to us about sin is that sin does come in and whisper the promises of pleasure, but sin never has the ability to follow through on those promises. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite of that. Sin promises us what only God can deliver on. But when we put our faith in those idols, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, it not only doesn't deliver, but it begins to change us. It really begins to change our hearts and it distorts for us what true joy really is. Tim Keller put it this way, when we build our lives on anything but God, that thing, though a good thing, becomes an enslaving addiction, something we have to have to be happy. When we start to give ourselves over to any of these things in a way that is sinful, it doesn't just involve the work of our hands. It doesn't just involve the work of our mind or our lips. It also involves our heart. And when I give myself over to those sins, it begins to not only change me, but also change my heart. I mean, an extreme example of that is addiction. Now, all of us are familiar with addiction, maybe some of you more intimately than others. But it's a remarkable thing about addiction, uh, if you've ever seen someone go through this, is that we can run to something that gives us pleasure and seems to give us everything that it promises to give us. So, uh, you know, you're hitting a peak, man. This is awesome. This is just satisfying to a degree maybe I've never. Maybe it's the first time you've done cocaine or maybe it was the first time you spent more than $100 on your credit card, you know? <gasps> the mall. Or the first time you saw Nanny, I don't know, you know? You thought that was life. And so you go back to that. And you keep going back to that. The problem is with an addiction is that every time I go back to that thing that brought me so much joy, the joy gets a little less, a little less, and a little less. So I find myself giving myself over to that behavior 
more and more with an attempt to try to get the pleasure back up to where it was when I first began to enjoy this or cover my pain or keep me from thinking about certain things and so the more I give myself to this sin guess what the more my heart begins to wrap itself around this sin as an acceptable way for me to understand joy understand my life and lo and behold when that gets hold of me how I understand you someone that's in the throes of addiction it's not uncommon for them to be in a place of denial right the way they even think about what they've given themselves to begins to change or how about the stage of blaming where they find themselves powerless to do anything about their own addiction because they're certain that it's somebody else's fault. That even the thing that they've given themselves to and that's destroying their lives is the fault of everybody else around them and as a result it's easier for them to isolate themselves and pull themselves away from all sane thinking. Because the thing that they love so much that promised so much that didn't deliver on any of it now has robbed them of even their ability to process it sanely. And God understands that about sin. That when we give ourselves to it, it begins to change us. And he desires our joy. C.S. Lewis put it this way, there are two kinds of people in this world. There are those who say to God, thy will be done. And there are those who say to God, that, or that God says to them, all right then, have it your way. What a terrifying thought to have God look at you and go, okay, fine, have it your way. So how do we kill it? <laughs> Waffle House. We're back to it. Scattered, smothered, covered, chunked, topped and diced. But the way that we put death, put sin to death, is not by making it too little and not by making it too big. We triumph over pleasure with a greater pleasure. That the way that we put sin to death is we call to life that which is true life. The joy of sin is completely trumped by a greater joy. Go to Colossians 3. Let's look at verse 1. Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Since all the things that we've been talking about for the last three weeks are true, set your heart on things above. Look at the gospel. You know, it's an amazing thing when we look at the gospel, we see in Christ two things. A lot of theologians call this the active and the passive righteousness of Christ. And the active righteousness of Christ is something that we're all really familiar with. We have heard it preached a lot of times where Jesus lived a perfect life, that he came on the earth, he never did any of the things that are in the list in Colossians chapter 3, that he literally was perfect in every way. And in perfect obedience, in, in his own righteousness, he even went to the cross. And on the cross, he died a death that he didn't deserve to die. He became sin for us. And so all of our sins were paid for. And we understand that in some degree that Jesus paid for my sins. That I 
committed crimes that I couldn't pay for or I had increased debt that I had no money to pay for and Christ came in and he paid those debts. Last week we talked about you know an example of being at a fancy restaurant and you know you're a teenager at the prom and you just gorge yourself and you realize when the ticket comes you have no means by which to pay for what you've done and yet you find your father is sitting at the table and saying hey I'll cover that you're free from the obligation of this debt you're free now to relax you don't have to live in fear you're free and that's what Christ did for us on the cross he removed our sins our sinful obligation to pay for what we've done wrong that's his act of righteousness but there's also his passive righteousness of what Jesus accomplished for us. His passive righteousness is the second half of the story. And that is, what do you think someone who lived a perfect life deserves? Someone who did it all right. Who did everything right. What would they deserve? What do you think the world would do? What do you think God would do for this perfect person? Where does your imagination go with that? Jesus says, because I've done these things for you, you stand in that position with me now. The passive righteousness is I receive a righteousness passively from Christ that he is giving me what he accomplished so that I can step into the full rights that are reserved only for him. Let me try to give you an idea of what I'm talking about here, okay? The, the outrageousness of Jesus saying, not only have I paid all your debt, but now I've ushered you into the inner courts of the kingdom of God and every right that I have here as a son, I now give to you. That we stand in that place... When Renee and I, we'd been married for about four years and we had three kids and we lived in this little thousand square foot townhouse and uh, we drove uh, the Audi R1 minus uh, everything and then a minivan. And uh, so times were hard. We made hardly any money and it was April Fool's Day. And so uh, I decided I was going to play a practical joke on Renee. And in our town of Charlottesville, there lived a man, uh, I think maybe he's still alive, I'm not sure, John Kluge, who uh, at the time was one of the wealthiest men in the United States. Like, this guy had billions, okay? And he owned rolling hill after rolling hill of Albemarle County, and everybody knew who he was and all his quirky things about him. And uh, so I came up with this brilliant idea of this practical joke that I was going to play on Renee. You know, here we are, we're a struggling family, our cars don't really run that well, you know, our house, we have a hard time heating it, three kids, uh, you know, and so I come running in the front door of our house and say, you are not going to believe what happened to me today. She goes, what? I'm, what? I said, I was driving down the boulevard and I saw this car just going to a roll. And uh, I couldn't believe it. It just happened right before my eyes. And so I pulled my car over and ran up. The car was on fire and somebody was trapped inside the car. And, and I pulled them out to my own, you know, peril. I, I rescued this person as I dragged them away. The car is exploding and I saved them. And the ambulance comes and I get in the ambulance with them. And I'm resuscitating and helping save this person's life. And Renee's like, yes, yes. And I said, guess what? I, you know, after he goes to the hospital, it was John Kluge's son. 
Well, he doesn't have a son. Really? And John Kluge came into the hospital and said, you were the man that saved my son's life. And he says, from this day forward, I vow myself to you. Whatever is mine is yours. Whatever I can do for you, you just tell me because I'm all in. And Renee was like, what? Yes! We've made it. Everything. And can you imagine what her imagination was doing? What was it doing? What would your imagination be doing? You would be dreaming of all the things that are applied to John Kluge's account now being applied to our account. Think of the joy that would bring to you. Think of the celebration. Think of all the things that were huge that morning now that are very, very small because now we're part of the estate of Kluge. Yeah, it was not a good thing when I told her it was a joke. See, I am not only called to set my heart's affection on the reality that Jesus, his passive and his active righteousness is applied to my account. But I'm also, like in this story with Kluge, you know, and you just imagine Renee's imagination just going crazy, is that I'm also invited to allow my mind and my imagination to be applied to what Christ has done for me. It says in this, in this verse, for we shall see him as he is, Hang on, I'm sorry. Let me go back. In John, it says, We shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Meaning there will come a day when Christ returns that we will be like him. That we will not only be like him, but that we will be with him. That we will be in his position. N.T. Wright says that if we could see what we will become, and if people could see what we would become, people would be tempted to worship us. It's the greater pleasure, it's the greater joy that gives us the courage to kill sin. It is setting our affections and our thoughts on the gospel, what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ has done, or will come and do. We are smothered in the work of Christ. And when we are smothered in the work of Christ and we have set our hearts on it and we have set our minds on it, it gives us the power to put sin to death because sin loses its grip on me. Its affection loses its grip on me. Will this be easy? No, I don't think so. The word here, set your heart and set your mind, is a verb that talks about keep setting your heart, keep setting your mind. This is something that we apply ourselves to every day. And how can we do that? Remember, in Hebrews it says that Christ went to the cross for the joy set before him. And the joy that was set before Christ was us. Imagine that. You are the hope of Christ. It was his hope and what the Father was going to do through his work in your life that allowed him to go to the cross. So in the same way, now we can put our affection on the one who put his affection on us. We can allow our hearts to be wrapped around the very thing that he has done and let our minds begin to understand that so that we can let our own imaginations understand the riches that are ours. Because we're not in John Kluge's kingdom. We're in the kingdom of the son of the universe. So how do we do that? 
you're doing it right now. You're taking a moment to say, Lord, return me back to my sanity. Everything that you brought in here this morning, everything that you say I may be struggling with, every sin that you say, wow, that's going to be a tough one to put down. We stop and we gaze and we say, you know, it's not a tough one for Christ. And because he is in me, I can set my affection in that place and learn how to love a new love and learn how to be loved with a new love. We look, we behold, we taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your provision. Thank you for the gospel. That we can not only understand, but set our heart's affection on that. I just pray right now, Father, that my friends here that maybe have understood the sting of sin that has grabbed their hearts and may not want to let go. The sin of malice or slander. The sin, maybe, Father, of greed or sexual immorality. I pray, Father, that you'd give them the grace to set their hearts on you, Christ. That not only you've forgiven them, but that you've given them a new place, and it's not the sinner's place. It's the place of son and daughter. And I pray that would capture our imagination. That would capture our minds.